This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. How can you go straight from high school to working in the marketing department at a growing Bitcoin startup? Praxis. That's how. One of today's sponsors is Praxis, and James Walpole, a Praxis alum, did exactly that. He applied to the program right out of high school, decided to defer college for a year. Uh, He had been accepted at a few schools, jump into Praxis with both feet. He was placed at a company doing Bitcoin uh, startup, a Bitcoin company based in Atlanta, doing uh, all kinds of interesting work, helping small businesses adopt the technology. He loved it. He engaged with his work and the Praxis curriculum and educational experience. He ended up launching a podcast. He started blogging regularly. He started doing digital marketing consulting on the side in addition to his job. He ended up getting hired on full-time after the program, as so many of our graduates do. Now he's working there while most of his peers have just finished one year of more classrooms under more fluorescent lights and (laughs) cinder blocks filling out more assignments and struggling to make it to class on time, a repeat of high school. He's been out there in the world. He already has the job that he had hoped college would help him get. Zero debt, no wasted time. He's creating the life he wants. You can too. Check it out, discoverpraxis.com. I'm not going to promise you it's easy. I'm not going to promise you you'll get in. It's a tough program. It's competitive. And once you're in, you got to be all in. It's on you to get out of it what you want. But if you show the effort and commitment, I guarantee you the Praxis advisors and coaches will help you create the life that you want. Discoverpraxis.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the podcast. Today is slay back to the future day. And Zach, I thought that was a brilliant uh, title that you came up with. I'm going to write a book someday with that title and I'll probably get sued. (laughs) Slay back to the future. Today we are talking about the future. Zach, this is something you've been really interested in over the last several months, at least. Um, I know you've been reading a lot of different books that are roughly related to the theme of the future or the pace of innovation, technological change, what it means for culture. There's a whole lot of stuff wrapped into here. Uh, where do you want to start? Uh, ooh, yeah, there, like you said, there's a ton of stuff wrapped into here. And I just want to start off by saying I am really bad at predicting the future, just like everybody else. So this is not um, necessarily... not, a, not a prediction show. Yeah, not a prediction show. More and more like about the institutions and like the secondary and tertiary effects of technological change. It doesn't mean that I won't try to get you to make predictions about the future. Uh, um, And just so that later you can be featured in one of those articles that's like, look at how stupid people were when they did this. (laughs) I I honestly, I'm, I'm totally okay with articles like that when they target people who their primary point is some kind of Luddism, right? Like you can find these old articles where from like the eighties where people are like laptops are stupid. No one's ever going to own a laptop. Why would you want to do work on your lap? (laughs) Or like that the internet is a a passing fad. Yeah. Um, Let's start with, since you mentioned secondary tertiary effects of technology, 
Let's start with one that ties into something you're very passionate about, which is aviation. And yeah. you've talked on this podcast before, one of our very early episodes, we talked a bit about aviation. Um, you know, you're very steeped in that industry. Many generations of, of family are involved in the industry, but you've always just been a, a big, I don't know, kind of a, a aviation buff from both a business standpoint and just the, the pure technological standpoint. Why are self-driving cars possibly a bigger disruption to the aviation industry than even to the auto industry? Yeah, so I think that self-driving cars, once they become uh, much more popularized and once you are able to do things like have self-driving buses, you're going to see a lot of pressure be put on airlines, particularly regional airlines. Uh, a couple of reasons for this. One, the United States has a really great uh, interstate highway system. You know, I, I, you run into a lot of people who harp on why don't we have trains like Europe? And it's well, because we have highways. <laughs> yeah. And we're much larger than Europe. And our entire country wasn't flattened in the mid 20th century. So the regional airlines kind of play right now a role that a, a high speed rail system might play in a smaller country or a country with high speed rails. But the regional airlines are getting a lot of pressure from a couple different directions. Um, one being a pilot shortage. It's really, really hard, time consuming and expensive to become an airline pilot and they're not paid very well. So a lot of these airlines are having a really hard time hiring new pilots. Uh, when you have that issue, you, you don't have pilots who can actually fly airplanes. So a lot of these why, small- Why airplanes. is the, uh, if the demand for pilots is really high, why is the price that they're paid not, is it going up or is it not going up? Uh, so one of the things I saw recently was that one of these smaller regional airlines is uh, giving a $10,000 signing bonus to anyone who signs up to be a pilot. But when you're paid something like $18,000 a year to do a job that requires you to live probably hundreds of miles away from your family and keep a second apartment in addition to your home after, you know, five, 10 years of uh, additional training that costs around $200,000, it's still not a very attractive um, on, job. On the flip <laughs> side, though, it's... It's so my I have a, a cousin who's a pilot and yeah. he made peanuts for two, three years and then made OK money for two, three years. And then all of a sudden he jumped. He like doubled his pay and now yeah. he makes really good money. Well, but it took about five years of poverty. Right. So it's not like it's not like being a doctor or historically a lawyer where that's almost guaranteed. Right. Where you work for, uh, you know, five, ten, maybe even fifteen years, making very, very little money, but eventually you're going to be very uh, income uh, heavy, right? You're going to make a lot of money income-wise. If and this is almost always the case in doctors, right? So doctors don't make a lot of money. Uh, they go into debt while they're in uh, medical school. Then they go into their internships and their residencies. They don't make that much, and then they eventually make more and more money as they get a little bit older. Airline pilots aren't like that. While that might be the case for some airline pilots, the industry is extremely cyclical. So the next recession you get, you're going to have guys who have been working in the industry for 20, 25 years who are going to be laid off and they're going to have to start the, their careers all over again. Uh, there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, it being cyclical is the largest reason. The other being it's an entirely seniority-based industry yeah. Uh, yeah. for a couple reasons. One, it's 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 kind of hard to judge pilots based on their merit. <laughs> um, the second being that the unions are just extremely powerful in these industries and these uh, airlines. So what you see is when say American and us airways merged, you're going to have lawsuits for the next couple of years, uh, figuring out how to merge the pilots from us airways into the pilots for American. 
And that's just something that comes from the consequence that the seniority in this industry is not the seniority in the industry that matters. It's the seniority in your specific airline. Yeah. So something you saw when uh, America West bought U.S. It's Airways. Like the, it's like the equivalent of trying to get vested in a particular company. They don't, they don't want you to leave. So you, right. you're sort of your, your experience is non-transferable. So one of the things you saw when uh, America West bought U.S. Airways after one of the cycles uh, in the early 2000s was that America West was a fairly young company and U.S. Airways was a pretty old company. It was an older company that came about after uh, deregulation in the 70s, right? So America West was the one buying U.S. Air. So this younger airline was buying this older airline. So you may have had guys at America West who are pilot number one, two, or three who had many fewer years experience than the guys who were pilots, you know, 1,000, 2,000 at U.S. Air. But those guys who were pilots one, two, and three were now senior to the guys who had more years of experience in U.S. Airways because the airline that was buying them, they had more seniority in that airline. Yeah. So, so okay, so you have, for a lot of reasons, the the way that the yeah, so it's, the unionized, it, yeah, the labor contracts and, and the cyclical nature, a lot of different things going on, all the certifications. But you have a shortage of pilots. Yeah, so there's a lot of pressure on the regional airlines already. You also have this fact that uh, you have something called the TSA that makes it really miserable for people to fly. Yeah. And it takes them a lot of time to fly as well. I, I bought TSA PreCheck last year. It's like $85. It's good for something like five years. And it has been the best travel purchase I have made. It kind of feels like I'm buying indulgences like from the church. Um, but I really don't care. Hey, if you pay us a little bit of money, um, you'll be safe and we won't have to worry about checking you as much. I mean, this is the whole. The, All right. It's, it's a ridiculous idea. But, it sort of uh, reveals the stupidity of their their logic in the first place. You know, it's funny. Before the TSA, I, would, I had a rule that if you were driving somewhere or if there was somewhere that would take you less than three hours you would drive but if it was three or more you would fly now right. since the tsa my rule is i have a five hour rule so let's think about i'm in pittsburgh right if i want to drive to if i want to get to philadelphia it's about a four and a half hour drive. why would you want to get to philadelphia oh I, I i don't know that, that's, that's a good question but <laughs> just, let's just kidding use it philadelphians uh yeah uh so i, I want to get to philadelphia about a four and a half hour drive it's about a 45 minute flight so if the amount of time it would take me to drive out to the Pittsburgh airport, you know, which is maybe 20 minutes outside of the city, uh, park my car or get dropped off in my Uber, go through the TSA checkpoint if I'm a if, if I'm a normal person who doesn't have uh, pre-check, go to my gate, uh, you know, check my bag if I need to do that, get on the plane, fly to Philadelphia, pick up my bag at, ba baggage claim, get on get in either another Uber or get on SEPTA if I'm truly a masochist and then go into the city of Philadelphia, that's probably going to take me around four hours, four and a half hours. Yeah. Now, and, and not, to, not to mention a good part of that, you're captive in an area that may or may not have uh, food or coffee or Wi-Fi that is acceptable. Um, you're kind of, you're kind of, it's all segmented. So you can't, it's not like four hours of unbroken time where you could right. maybe read or write or something. It's like right. 20 minutes of sitting here, 20 minutes of waiting in line here, 30 this minutes is, of this. This is where the self-driving cars actually make the difference because this is how things are right now, right? I'm still going to choose to fly if if my time's valuable to me, probably because I still get more unbroken time flying than I do driving. Because yeah. driving's exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. It's physically exhausting. It's just not fun. 
Now, if the car can drive itself and I can sit and I can read or I can work or I can chat with somebody and I don't have to pay attention to the highway, that makes driving much, much more attractive for people. So oh, I, think I mean, think about, think about, okay, what if I could go to, uh, from Charleston where I am to Detroit or Chicago, you know, that's, we're talking 12, 15 hours, but if I could do it overnight while I'm sleeping, right. I'm I mean, sleeping you in the back of the car and I wake a, up and I'm there. You have a sleeper uh, bus right now that's running between San Francisco and LA where you can pay, I think it's something like a hundred bucks. I don't call me on that where you can go overnight between San Francisco to LA or vice versa. And that's just for a lot of people, that's just a lot more comfortable than flying. Yeah. Um, and I think you're going this, you're going to see more and more of these sleeper buses. The cost is going to come down as the bus, as the drive themselves and individuals will just use their own self-driving cars in order to, uh, something would normally take them for flight. But so long as we have the TSA in place and if, if you're versed in your public choice here, you know, they're not going away any, anytime soon. Uh, it's, it's probably going to be faster. Uh, you can get dropped off in the middle of the city. You won't have to go out to like where Dulles is or where the Philadelphia airport is. Uh, you'll probably not have to put up with uh, nearly as much baggage claim. And hopefully you don't have to put up with the TSA. Just the door to door concept alone. When I, I like to count when I'm traveling, how many different forms of transportation it takes me to get somewhere. So, you know, if I'm going yeah. to Orlando, uh, I recently did. So I drive to the Charleston airport and park. So I've used my car. You know, I, I walk to the gate, go through all the security. I get on the plane, I fly to Atlanta and I land. And then I take some sort of tram inside Atlanta airport to a different gate. And then I fly to Orlando and then I land. Then I take a tram to the place that lets me go to the rental car bus that takes me to the rental car place. And right. I drive the rental car to the hotel. You know, it's just like, yeah. So, so what happens? Yeah, so if the, the airlines are, if the airlines are smart, the larger airlines will probably partner with some kind of, you know, driving bus or self-driving car service because I think people this is another thing we can talk about I, I don't think people will own self-driving cars um that's that's a bit more of a prediction than anything else yeah. so that's yeah. the pushing no, I, mean, I, think, I think the decline in, over, in ownership overall is something I mean, I would you, you would expect with the sharing economy I mean, you're already seeing it. Fewer and fewer young people own cars because they can use something like Uber or Lyft. Mm -hmm. It's if you live in a city like New York or Chicago or Boston, you can do that much more easily. Now, where I live right now, I kind of still need a car, but I'm confident that my car that I have right now is going to be the last car I ever own. Yeah, yeah, that, that's one of the, the most frustrating things here in Mount Pleasant. So Uber is here. It's in Charleston, and it has been for a little bit. And in Charleston itself, it's, it's pretty consistent. But out here in, in Mount Pleasant, the, in the suburbs... I can't necessarily know, like I often have to kind of maybe take my car to the airport. If I have a really early or really late flight, I may or may not be able to get an Uber because there's just not enough drivers. Yeah. Um, so it's still, you know, it's still limited in scope. Okay, so the regional airlines. So what is there, is the response to this, they all just collapse and fold or is the response, suddenly they get really innovative and competitive somehow? Um, does this push for, does this- I think a lot of them are just going to have to fold. Okay. Um, have already started to do this, uh, you know, due to uh, various forces, largely right now being the, the pilot shortage. Uh, what happens is they tend to go bankrupt or start pushing on bankruptcy. And then the larger airlines that are dependent on them buy them. So Delta owns a couple uh, airline subsidiaries, right? So 
If pilots, if the larger of, airlines, well, well what about self-flying planes? Can they? I mean, is it is landing a plane and taking off just infinitely more complex than the what's required for a self-driving car? No, but it's infinite. It's infinitely more costly. So, and by costly, I mean if something goes wrong. So, not only do you have you know 100 people on the airplane, 150 people on the airplane, you also have people on the ground. So, I think self-driving planes or self-flying planes. Yeah. <laughs> Are on the horizon. There's there's a couple couple puns I can go go at, but I think that they're further down the line. Not only because of regulatory issues, uh, but also liability issues, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're the airline, it'd be a lot easier to pin uh, a crash on a tired pilot. Or uh, in in the mid '90s, there was an airlines crash uh, outside uh, somewhere in Colorado, and one uh, blamed the crash on. It ultimately ended up actually being his fault, but one of the uh, issues that they tried on was the fact that one of the pilots was a woman and one of the pilots was a man, right? So that's so much easier to pin something on than saying like, oh, the the infinitely safe self-flying plane we had didn't uh, wasn't able to land itself. Oops. Yeah. Right. Well, so what about I, this? I, I think it's something further on the horizon, but it's it's. There's like these further. hybrids too now. Of I've seen these prototypes of basically a drone like the quadcopter drones but it's large enough for a person to sit in so it's like a, a self-flying drone car that will deliver yeah you, I, you want to go i honestly think that self-driving cars are just going to make that something like that kind of irrelevant yeah uh, that, that'll be a nice toy of the wealthy but it's not going to be one of these nice toys of the wealthy that actually becomes popularized why not i want a flying car uh let's go back to my recommendation i can't remember did you cut out my recommendation on how to uh how to promote innovation in aviation from our, our podcast a uh, couple. Yeah, you you asked. Last... Yeah, you asked me to cut it out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the FAA is going to be your biggest issue there, right? Yeah. Um, yes, we won't tell you what Zach recommended needed to be done to the FAA, but yes. Well, so 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 let's just look at the incentives here, right? So Ford, Google, Uber, Apple, all these have huge incentives to make sure that they're actually self-driving cars allowed on highways. Airlines don't really have as huge of an incentive right now to have uh, self-flying airplanes in like totally self-flying airplanes. Now, maybe you could get some kind of company like Uber who decides, hey, we're actually going to partner with Airbus or with Boeing and we're going to make it that they're totally self-flying airplanes and then the incentives will shift. But like right now, you just don't see that. Yeah. So I just think that a lot of the pressures are actually going to come from ground transportation, mm -hmm. which I think is good. I, 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 I. People get so caught up in like, oh, why don't we have self-driving self car or self flying cars or something like that, that they miss that you just don't even need it in the first place. I mean, this is one of the points that Venkatesh Rao got at in uh, the Breaking Smart series, right? People actually, in their futurist mindset of, oh, I want something like a Jetsons world, they're actually experiencing this kind of conservative pastoralism because they're taking the institutions of the world that they're in or the institutions right. of world from the past and they're just projecting them it's, into the future it's kind of the it's kind of the faster horse idea right. you know like oh well i don't have a jetpack that lets me you know fly really fast somewhere but, but i don't i don't i don't need one because you and i are skyping right now right. and we're having this conversation uh instantly I mean, without having to travel anywhere while we're on the aviation topic this is actually why i think supersonic flight is less important than people think uh, I, I think we'll get to a point where supersonic flight will happen again, and I think it is important for a certain type of person, mostly people whom it's extremely important for them to be somewhere in person. 
uh, and people for whom they get very, they place an extremely high value on that personally, right? So maybe a businessman who does business in London and has a family in Manhattan and wants to spend the evenings with his family after, you know, doing a day of meetings in London, right? For a certain type of person, that's really valuable. But for other people, mostly normal people and even mostly normal business people, having reliable, consistent, affordable in-flight Wi-Fi is a more important innovation mm-hmm. than supersonic flight. It reminds like, me of that, uh, what's his, R- Rupert... Sheldrake, I think that's his name. I can't remember his name. There's a, there's a, he has a couple of TED talks, and one of them is Confessions of an Ad Man. But one of them, he talks about billions of dollars being put into some train in Europe to make it like 20 minutes faster. And he said, why not spend half that money to have supermodels serve champagne on the train? People would be begging right. for the for the trip to be longer. Just right. thinking thinking about the the improvements in efficiency don't always have to come in the way they have in the past right. with bigger, faster, you know, it can, it can be in a lot of different ways that often we, we overlook. So like I, I work almost entirely remotely, right? So if I am on an airplane from Boston to San Francisco and I have consistent, affordable, fast in-flight Wi-Fi, which I realize is still kind of like a pipe dream for a lot of, a lot of airlines, unfortunately, yeah. I can do just as much work as I could if I was on the ground in San Francisco. Now, I obviously wouldn't be able to do meetings that I was flying out to San Francisco to do, so the flight being faster, that would be nice. But that's less important to me than not being disconnected from the world for six hours. Yeah, nice compared to what? Nice to the tune of $400, nice to the tune of $50. So I think that like... Jet, JetBlue has really good in-flight Wi-Fi, uh, their FlyFi. It's it's phenomenal. They've partnered with Amazon to make it available to people. It's free on the flights. And it's so much better than the horrendous GoGo in-flight that most airlines oh, use. Oh, God, I hate GoGo. <laughs> so this is, this is actually a, an important innovation in information technology, though, because GoGo, if I understand GoGo correctly, it's usually used by connecting the plane to cell towers on the ground, Right. Whereas the JetBlue Wi-Fi is actually more like satellite Wi-Fi. That makes it more consistent, and that makes it faster than something like having 4G throughout the entire flight, and you pay you know, $15 for it, and you actually get to use it for like five minutes. Yeah. So what about this concept of fear of the future or the, the blowback when, when change happens fast, and that's a completely yeah. subjective term, um, People freak out and there's blowback, both in two ways. One is the obvious sort of public choice way where the vested interests that are getting uh, undercut get really upset and they go and they lobby and they do a bunch of corrupt stuff yeah. like ban, so they, ban they Uber, ban Airbnb. Yeah, that's that's kind of the obvious one. But then the other one is almost where there's this broader, even, even though people obviously like the change in some ways because they're buying things uh, and they're and they're using the new technology, which is the reason it stays profitable. They complain and they worry and they stress and they kind of they kind of turn against it in some ways. What do you think of that? Is there is there any way to mitigate that? Is that a good thing? Is that a good constraining force that that emerges out of society or is that unnatural? I mean, I think it's natural. Um, whether or not it's good is another question. I mean, if you understand how culture evolves, you understand that it's it's something that is reinforced by everybody but designed by nobody, right? It's a spontaneous order. It's the product of human action but not of human design. And this 
includes culture around technology. Technology is not something separate from culture. The technological progress happens so much faster than what we conceive of as, say, like cultural progress. And to divide those into two separate categories, I think, is a is a bit of a false dichotomy because technology is part of culture. But the say like the secondary or tertiary institutions, right, like the the institution of the family or political institutions um, or the institution of dating, right? Like today, it's it's totally normal for somebody to meet their significant other on something like OkCupid or Tinder. Like 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. Well, Tinder wasn't around, but it was still considered really weird to kind of meet someone on an online dating platform. Today, that's acceptable. So whether or not it's good or bad, I, I don't know. I, I think it's it can be analyzed through a, a value-neutral kind of lens. But what you it, it gets bad when you involve something like politics, right? Where you do get the this political pushback through, say, like the taxi cartels lobbying in Austin to effectively ban Uber and Lyft, or you know what happened over the weekend where uh, the New York State Senate uh, banned Airbnb in the entire state of New York. That's right? so. That's just vile. Uh, that's oh, just yeah. disgusting. Oh, it's absolutely disgusting. So. I'm more interested in the broader cultural effects, though. So one of the things I've noticed, both in how my my, my traveling for work and just being brought up, I, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, right? And like you grew up in rural, yeah, but, uh, a slightly lesser extent because you're you're older. Um, but people in rural Pennsylvania don't really use Amazon like people in the cities use it. No, I, I would I would want to see if that's actually true. I have a hard time believing that because people I find... use it. People use it to buy books, but I know people in cities who use it to buy everything. See, I feel like I know more people in cities who go walk or drive to a nearby, you know, crappy Dwayne Reed or something to buy groceries and to buy toilet paper and whatever else. And I know a lot of people that live in rural areas that there's just a steady stream of Amazon boxes coming to their okay, house. What's, their, what's, totally, what's their average age? Totally anecdotal. They're like 40, 40, you know, people with kids, older people. Yeah, so I, 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 this I, is totally anecdotal, but I, I have a hard time. I don't, I don't actually think the rural urban technology divide is as big as people think. I, I think it's bigger than people think. You think so? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Because I think that the internet is in cities simply because of density issues and network effects. The internet is essentially as valuable as say electricity or roads uh you, you see this but wouldn't, in, it, but wouldn't it be the opposite because those people have so many more more of everything there's more humans there's more jobs there's more resources of every kind available but this so but the, this has them this, this has this has a multiplier effect to it right so let's say like you want to order something Did you want to have your grocery multiplier effect we don't use that phrase on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> sorry go you, you want to so so I, i've even noticed this in like the different kinds of cities i'm in right so if i'm in say chicago i can have all these different things or delivered to me within an hour maybe even less than that than if I'm in, say, like Pittsburgh, where I, I have access to a lot more things. I have access to a lot more things than I would have if I out in, say, like rural Pennsylvania. But I have in Chicago food delivered to me. I have books delivered to me. I experience delivered to me. I can go in. I can get in. I can get in the Uber app, and I can go down to a street festival that I that 15 minutes beforehand I didn't even know was happening in town. When you just don't have as density of people or density of utilities. You just don't really have that as much. Now, I think you have 
So th- this this is kind of a shift in my own thinking because a couple of years ago, or even like two or three years ago, I would have said the internet makes it so much easier for someone to like just live in the country and essentially live a pastoral life, but contribute to say the information economy. And I think that's true. I, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong anymore. But I think that someone who's living out there is still getting a lot of these benefits and a lot of the technological advancements the end of their life cycle, right? So if you're living if you're living in the Bay Area, this is entirely different because you know people have had like robot security guards out there for years, and you don't have those in normal cities. They even um, if you watch the show Silicon Valley, even the even the deer that you hit while you're driving are right. robot <laughs> robotic roadkill, robotics uh, deer. Yeah, right. But when you live out in the country, this is something like, oh, uh, I did you hear about Uber? I I've been out giving talks in say like rural Pennsylvania or Ohio recently where there's still people who don't know about Uber. I, that just doesn't happen in the well, city. okay. So, so there, there's obviously rural and urban experiences are different, and obviously certain types of businesses. I mean, whether it's a Chipotle franchise, a, tr- a genuine just like brick and mortar business, or uh, a new app like Yelp or I, Uber. I never, I, I never visited Chipotle until I went to college. Right. So I, those, I, so those are going to show up in bigger cities first, based on just the the density of the market. But there's sort of a separate question of whether the internet, because those are sort of businesses, some of them, not Chipotle, obviously, but some of them built on top of the internet, those may be used less. So obviously, if you don't have Uber in your city, you're not going to use Uber. But does that mean that the internet itself is used less? Or is there, um, you know, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess I, I feel like the, the conversation... Actually, if, you actually look up, if you actually look up the maps and statistics on where there is and is not uh, access to high-speed internet in the United States... Let's say if you look at the map, okay. the only areas there, – there are two types of areas, and they, they tend to overlap. They're not mutually exclusive. There are two types of areas where there just is not consistent access to high-speed internet. And this has been – you know, yeah, I was reading um, – you know, our friend Tim Shermack recommended to us uh, the book Without Their Permission by the Reddit co-founder. And uh, it was written like 2013. There's a statistic in there, and like 20 million Americans don't have access to high-speed internet, mostly in rural areas. And even three years ago, I'm sure that number has has gotten so much smaller, right? But even today, the areas in which people don't have access to high-speed internet are mostly rural, or they're federal lands, so like um, Indian reservations. Uh, now, most Indian reservations are also rural, unless you're in, say, like Fort Lauderdale, where you have an urban Indian reservation. That is some, I think, does drive a divide, and it just drives a divide faster as the internet becomes more and more important for day-to-day life. So what do now, you think whether or not does... the, whether or not the divide can be whether or not that divide can be bridged, I, it's just an it's just a, a matter of optimism or pessimism. Um, I'm optimistic about it. What, but, why, but why why does it? What, why wouldn't the optimistic view just just plain devil's advocate? Here, why yeah, sure. The optimistic view be, oh no, it's it's not going to be bridged. Where there's just really different diverse cultures and that's actually yeah. a good thing why is it a bad thing that there is a different if there is a widely divergent set of values or beliefs um from you know different areas whether they be rural rural or urban is yeah. that necessarily a bad thing do we all have to think and act alike i know I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing it's a necessary it's it, it, it becomes a bad thing once you involve political institutions gotcha. and political institutions that are very large so right? now you're now so, you're trying to to pit those differences create as an artificial zero sum game where you say it's got to either be your way of life or their way of life. And you guys are at right. odds and vote for me and I'll protect you versus. And if, we're, if, 
we're talking, if we want to like move out of the abstract political theory world, we actually want to talk about real examples in the United States today. And we want to talk specifically about the United States. The United States is a really, really big country. It's absolutely massive, right? Like 350 million people. Uh, and that includes the, the people who are living in Boston, the people who are living in Pittsburgh, Chicago, Charleston, wherever, and also the people who are living in like rural New Mexico and rural Pennsylvania. I'm not trying to say that these people in rural areas are necessarily worse or they're like backwards or something like that. I, I balk at that kind of elitism that, that tends to infect political discussions. But those people have a different set of cultural institutions. They have different community that they focus on. They have a different set of experiences than people in cities tend to have. And when you have very large political institutions, you're trying to make appeals to people's experiences and the people in the communities in which people live. And I think that the idea of like we as the United States is just a vacuous idea because there's just so many different people in a in a political institution so, as large as the United States. So I agree I, with all that, but I actually I feel like, again, this is very anecdotal and this is sort of just based on a very simple logic that could be that could be absolutely false. But I feel like the, that has always been the case, and it's less the case now because of the internet. It's easier to have a broader conversation and connect with people all, from all over the world and, and have sort of shared values so I actually it used to be. I, I don't think it is, has always been the case because, one, if you actually – so there's the issue of the size of government, right? Whether we want to talk about the physical size, like the, the square mileage of the – institution that is the United States as a political institution is just massive. And thankfully, it hasn't grown too much like in our lifetimes, but it grew a lot very, very quickly. And then the other is the actual size of the political institution itself in more of the abstract sense. So this is maybe one of those areas where federalism, it makes a bit more sense, where the people who are actually in a physical community with each other who probably have more things in common can make these decisions for themselves. Now, so, so I get the, the, internet, I get the, the internet argument. Raises, the internet raises an interesting argument that's an extension of, of the, the point that you just made, which is, is it possible to have – Zach Wienersmith, who is, the, uh, who is the author behind the Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial uh, comics, uh, smbc-comics.com, absolutely one, some of my favorite web comics. He has this idea that you can have political institutions that are not physically or geographically bound, Right. This is an idea that you've seen kind of popped, uh, pushed around with this, uh, it being an e-citizen of Estonia. So you live in the United States, but you're actually – Which just, I think in many ways this is like consistent with people's daily experience. I consider myself a proud citizen of Amazon Prime. And if yeah. they started offering me adjudication services or other things traditionally associated with like geographically bound governments, I would happily – uh, add um, that to, the, until, to my until membership you're, until you're someone living in San Francisco and because of the lobbying powers of the rice farmers in uh, California that live, you know, hundreds of miles away from you, you can't even like run your shower. Well, OK, hold hold hold, hold the political thought for one second, because I'm, I'm with you there and tracking, although I'm not sure um, the extent to which that has gotten better or worse. But just on the cultural divide, would yeah. you say because I feel like somebody living in New York City in, you know, 1910 versus someone living in rural Kentucky in 1910, that divide is going to be much bigger than today because today they can both be on Facebook and they can both be consuming the same ideas and products. And there's actually more scope for them to establish common ground. And there's actually less, less of a divide because of technology. Would you disagree? Would you say that technology has furthered the ur urban rural divide? I don't think it's that simple. 
I don't think it's necessarily that the divide is bigger now than it used to be. I think that there's there's probably I, I don't think it's a two like a single plane um kind of way of thinking, right? Like I, I if oh, you had, like, is a two by two matrix coming on? No, 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 but an X Y <laughs> an X Y axis. It, you yeah, axis. You probably want like a Z axis somewhere in there, right? So the the shared experiences may be they may have more in common now, but the importance of the institution of the non-political institutions around them is probably larger. So, and that's simply because, again, the I, the centralization of power in a place that is uh, a third party to both of them, right? So, be, so, so because the the federal government in this case is a much bigger part of daily life than it was before, right. the differences between those people, the the stakes are higher. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, so if some if some policy that's you know in line with the beliefs and incentives or whatever of somebody who lives in New York City is passed for the entire country. Right. Um, that's something that would not have happened many, many years ago when the federal government was maybe not as pervasive or something something to that effect. Yeah, I don't want to play like nostalgia saying like, oh, the federal government was so much better. Oh, God, none of us would want to go back and live. That, in that's horrible. I would, never, I would never want to do that. I'm simply saying that the, the stakes are higher because the technology connects us more, right? It's kind of a catch-22 that we both are on say like Facebook, but our uses of Facebook and the parties that can control our use of Facebook are very different. And they can lobby a third uh, a third party that is separate from both you and I and say a, a, another person like rural, rural uh, North Dakota to make it that a, a suboptimal uh, policy for all three of us, right? So uh, there, there's a couple ways forward with this, right? Do we just make it that government's irrelevant? I, I hope so. Uh, I, yes. I hope that you can do something <laughs> like that. I hope you can do something like that. Um, the I, I think that one of the institutional fixes is you just make the geographic boundaries of any given state much smaller. So I was recently having a discussion with someone where I, I kind of made this argument and I said, yeah, I guess you could say that I, I would be a proponent of the United States balkanizing and the woman looked at me and she's like, you realize I'm from Yugoslavia, right? I was like, no, how was I supposed to know that you were from Yugoslavia? As long as those unit, those areas of jurisdiction keep getting smaller until finally they are just one individual. Uh, that's, that's right. <laughs> I'm all about it. I mean, I would be happy. I'd be happy with something like more like a Nozickian meta utopia, right? Where if, if I was living in some place that was determined by a bunch of rural people in rural Pennsylvania, I could easily move to say a more urban center. Well, so here's, here's the beauty of this. So in the, the whole idea of federalism, or if you get into like the political science jargon, the, the Tibu model of how competition between governing air, you know, between governments, um, will make sure that they, you know, are, are good and they're, they're not overstepping their bounds or doing bad things. The problem with that is that exit cost is so, so high right, right, in right. the physical so, world. So now if you do map on this idea of virtual or digital governance, now you can completely switch entities that you belong to that uh, determine, you know, the legal services you get, the um, regulations and business registrations you're going to go through and whatever other stuff without ever moving. I can, it'd be just like, I'm going to switch and I'm going to be under the, the rules of uh, the city of Charleston instead of Mount Pleasant because I like those better, but I'm not going to move my house. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that that's one of the things that, one of these opportunities that's opened up with the internet so, so, so um, 
do you think that technological advancement mm. is inevitable? Uh, I, I think that what you just uttered is entirely meaningless. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds I, like I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, the the okay. What would it take to stop technological progress and to you know sort of um, start nuclear war regressing? So, yeah, so you don't think there's any sort of short of a a an all out you know war where physical resources are being destroyed? Do you think there are institutional or cultural shifts that would be so radical uh, uh, okay. to start to regress? I'll backtrack a little bit. Uh, obviously, a uh, cataclysmic nuclear event would be something that would stop all progress, not just technological. but Unless we emerged with like a third arm and superpowers from the fallout. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I don't think movies are doing me any good. Yeah, so... Anything that would stifle access to the internet, I think, would slow the rate of progress, right? I don't know if you could make it so much that you wouldn't have any technological progress. If you shut down the internet, you would still have technological progress. It would just become a lot harder to do it. You'd still have people, you still have rogue individuals out there trying to find better ways of doing things, right? Unless you have a totally omniscient state. Uh, or any kind of institution, which which at that point it becomes a state, a totally omniscient, uh, omnipresent state that could actually control everybody's day-to-day -day actions. I don't think that that's just going to happen. Now, if you stifle access to the internet, you you slow down the rate of technological progress. There's a reason why today a 15-year-old with access to the internet and a laptop can create like the next billion-dollar company. As more and more people get access to the internet, and again, this is this is a consequence of network effects. There are more and more resources on there. Uh, as those resources become cheaper to access, it becomes easier to create new resources, right? So uh, unless you see something like what you saw in Egypt, where the government actually shut off access to the internet, unless you saw that happen on like a wide-ranging scale, I just don't think that's going to happen. So well, I guess I am a bit of an optimist in that regard. I, it, any, it, well, it's hard not to be. It's hard not to feel like sometime around the industrial revolution like the the box was open the cat got out of the bag whatever metaphor and and there's no there's no going back you can't put it that's what it feels like now so yeah. now some people who are are really you know well versed in history will say things like well there was a period of of really tremendous technological advancement in say the far east in china you know many many centuries ago and then all of a sudden it stopped. All that knowledge seemed to be lost. There were centuries of essentially no technological progress. This has happened at different points in history where we've sort of progress has stopped or even gone backwards. And there's been some sort of dark ages for humanity. I don't know enough history to know what those claims that this sort of that narrative, uh, how true or false well, it is. But you it, would, it seems plausible. But it, it, it seems plausible if you have some from kind where of we're sitting. It's hard totally to imagine. stamp out like bourgeois virtues, right? The total stamping out of bourgeois virtues, that would be a way to uh, prevent technological yeah, yeah, progress. Tell me what you mean by uh, bourgeois virtues in, in a nutshell. Yeah, so this is McCloskey's idea that there is uh, that there ought to be respect for entrepreneurs, that there ought to be respect for merchants, that there that it is honorable to do hard things and provide services to people, right? Like that's a very very watered down, uh, you know, one one to ten second 
overview on what we're trying to get at here. Now, if you you had such a cultural shift where it was dishonorable to provide new services to people, where it was dishonorable to find better ways of doing things, where it was shameful to do these things. Now, maybe that would be enough to prevent technological progress. So, but so I think maybe... that the internet, I think that now that you have access to the internet, though, I think that you would have something like this, like uh, like one of these dystopian novels, like like Anthem, right, where the guy uh, stumbles upon a light bulb in a an old subway tunnel and he finds the light bulb. I think that that would probably be what would happen with bourgeois virtues, with anything like this, where it, it, it some, does... some 16-year-old would stumble across these ideas and it would light a fire. Yeah, now, unless you totally destroyed the internet, though. I, I just don't know how you would do something like that. Yeah, it does feel like there is in some sense a point of no return because information be, because it's not just like physical technologies can be lost and if the information about how to build those is on paper libraries can be burned and right. whatever people can be you know people with the knowledge in their heads can be burned at the stake it feels like there's something different so even if you imagine let's say the really radical sort of small is beautiful or the earth should only have a million people living on it. You know, there are people who believe these type of things who truly think that technological improvements, improvements in standard of living, at least for everyone else besides themselves, you know, they actually think that those are bad and immoral and there should just be like a very small bands of hunter gatherers living somewhere. And that would be a preferable world. So let's say that ideology somehow becomes the dominant ideology and replaces this belief that progress is either good or at least not bad. Even if that happened, it just seems so hard to imagine any way to permanently erase all of the information. And if some small minority of people says, no, I, I disagree, because there's always some small minority. It, would, it, would only, it really only needs to be one person. Yeah, One say, person with the access to some kind of resources. Yeah, and I get to see how the world could be used to be i get to like the information is you know i don't know how you would really kill the internet there's not like an off switch i mean you know i guess all uh all power grids uh, you need to have something like a stuxnet virus that actually would physically destroy all the machines connected to the network yeah so and i mean you know i I guess i never want to be too confident in this stuff but it's it is very hard from where we're sitting. And, and this is actually the topic of a book that, that you just recommended to me, but it's very hard from where we're sitting to not have the feeling, yeah, there have been points of technological plateaus or regress in history, but it's different this time. So maybe right. maybe to be humble, we should say maybe it's not different this time. Maybe at any given time, it's possible that uh, a radical change in beliefs causes people to uh, look down on innovation and we start to go backwards and everyone thinks that's the right thing to do. Maybe, you know, over some many hundred year period. But um, the, the book I'm referencing is, uh, but what if we're wrong by Chuck Klosterman? Yeah. Which, which I have to say was recommended to me by our friend, Michael Gibson. Yes. Who has also been on this podcast. Yeah. So, and I was, I was talking to him recently and he is of the opinion, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he's of the opinion that, He's not sure if we won't destroy ourselves first <laughs> before we we get to a position where we're uh, where we have something like uh, full unemployment from technological progress. And we were we were discussing a universal basic income. Right. And we were talking about whether we're optimistic or not. And I am ultimately. But that's also because I just don't know what the future is going to look like. I don't know what next week's going to look like. I've, I've never understood this assumption that 
Are we going to talk about UBI? Whether it, whether it be uh, robots or humans with bigger guns or whatever, like this assumption that everyone's automatically going to want to start destroying each other. You know, I mean, <laughs> oh, I thought we were going to talk about everyone's going to be unemployed. Well, well we this, can. The silly idea that uh, we we need a social security for all, which is just is how I'm starting to describe it because when we imagine someone who's living think, on social security. I think security, that's too kind to UBI, but go ahead. I, well, I, I like describing it that way. By the because... way, UBI stands for universal basic income, uh, or sometimes it's called big uh, basic income guarantee, but go ahead. I like describing it as social security for all simply because when I imagine someone who's living on social security, they're miserable. Retirement actually makes somebody 40% more likely to experience depression. <laughs> and that's because people just, they derive meaning from their work. This was, a, a, you know, mentioning Michael again, this was a, another good post that he just wrote recently on uh, whether or not people like to work and they derive meaning from the need to have to work. I, I think that's that's the case. But this idea that if we had full unemployment, right, from just robots taking everyone's jobs, right, that we wouldn't need teachers, we wouldn't need taxi drivers, we wouldn't need airline pilots, we wouldn't even need scientists. We've reached this point where we have uh, a sufficiently strong artificial general intelligence where you could just say to Alexa, hey Alexa, invent this service for me and the uh, Amazon AI services that you're signed up for will just do that, right? Well, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's important to, to be to think about what we mean when we say uh, unemployment or jobs would be eliminated or because I think those words, because it, they're, they're think, scary words. And that's what's scary. But, but think about now when you say, what if we didn't need teachers or this or that? We actually don't right now. We don't need authors. We don't need people to uh, design shutters for my house. That's not a need for human survival. Most of the things that we do, we don't actually need. And the, the sort of, if you think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the more an economy progresses, the further up that hierarchy, the things you do that you call work move. Like most of what's called jobs today, a couple hundred years ago, people would say, that's not a job. That's just a leisure activity. You don't right. need to do that. That's just a fun tinkering project. Right. Um, but you so, get paid so for it. Now. There are two approaches to this, right? This is, this is what you're getting at is that there, there will be all these new kind of activities unlocked that we can conceive of as work. Once we have like the robots and the machines taking off, yes. uh, taking things off. I think off that's the table. what we'll do. I think we just. I think that's the case. I think that's the case as well. Redefining work. Even if know? that weren't true, we would be infinitely wealthy. We, it wouldn't be that we'd be infinitely unemployed. It's that everybody would be wealthy. And and then the work becomes, which is the, work the hardest true. work of all, how to how to be a happy person. <laughs> it, it becomes philosophical, creative work. Yes. And I'm excited about a world in which that's the case. I'm excited about a world in which I can do those things. Now, proponents of UBI say. Okay, but if you had your rent paid for and your groceries paid for, you could achieve that uh, already. And that's being, I think that's being, in fact, a little bit charitable to proponents of UBI. I just don't think that's the that that's how people. So would... I do not understand any reasonable, sane person with knowledge of economics, uh, politics, or human nature could be so obsessed with this idea of UBI. To me, there are like four really obvious reasons why it's just stupid. The first is just a public choice reason. There's no way it ever. Oh, the gets... policy swap idea, right? Yeah, there's no way you ever. So the policy swap idea this. is for the for those who are listening. The policy swap idea is this idea that like Charles Murray and some of the libertarian advocates of a universal basic income, like which is that we would get rid of the welfare state and we would just replace it with UBI. 
Um, yeah, so compared to all these other programs, it's better, it's more efficient. Yes, that's true. But compared to the current, uh, you know, Department of Transportation, I can envision one that's better. Why don't we just swap them out? You know, <laughs> it's, it's funny. I, I actually came across an article the other day on like Mother Jones or some, one of these these lefty websites that was saying, don't listen to these conservative and libertarian advocates of UBI who want a policy swap. We need both UBI and a vast welfare state, right? right? right. Which just, just lends to the point that you're getting at. There's no reason you would think that a policy swap would ever happen. Yeah. There, are, there, there are enough, and there are very, very good reasons to think that it just would not happen. Have you ever seen a simple, straightforward government program, even if it got in place, and even if magically it replaced a bunch of really complex ones with more winners and losers and special carve-outs that stayed that way and didn't become some massive behemoth well, that this, looks nothing like it used to. Don't quote me on this, but isn't this what the income tax was supposed to be? They were supposed to get rid of uh, all these different tariffs and instead you would pay an income tax and what you just got was an income tax and tariffs? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't know exactly the history of the income tax, but there are many cases of, you know, I mean, we're still paying, like there's some tax on communications for the Spanish-American war. <laughs> it's like, not only the ones that are supposed to be temporary, or they're supposed to only affect one group of people, or they're supposed to... So so first, there's that. It's, it's There's no way this thing doesn't become just another hideous add-on to an already screwed up system of, you know, welfare incentives and whatever, where like half of the population, depending upon how you calculate it, may be receiving more from government than they're paying unless you factor in all the costs of like regulation and stuff. But anyway, so so there's the public choice argument. It's, it's never, you can't just magically wave your hand and implement this thing, even if you want to. But there, I think there are three other reasons it, it's terrible. I mean, one, just a very basic reason is it's still, to me, unfair and immoral. It's still violence. It's still saying, yeah. hey, you have money, I'm gonna forcibly take it from you and give it to somebody else. I still just find that immoral and disgusting and right. in, uh, uncivilized. But second, we already have it. I just think it's a, it's a solution in search of a problem. In a country like the U.S., that's pretty darn wealthy, Yeah, there really is not a problem of people dying for lack of shelter, food, basic medicine, or, you know, um, clothing or whatever. I mean, right. and I, I do not want to underestimate the plight of poor people, but things but like obesity are a case. bigger problem than they face than right. hunger. So in the in the cases where you do find all these problems that people think of when they think of poverty, they actually tend to be problems caused by other things like uh, mental illness, right? So homelessness, a, a, a sizable chunk of the homeless in the United States, I've seen anything from 25% to more than 50% are radically mentally ill. And a universal basic income isn't going to help them. It, it's it, it, they need something else other than that. Well, yeah, I just I think once you reach it's it's like child labor laws, like, oh, child labor is terrible. Let's ban it. You can only ban it once you don't need to ban it anymore because you're wealthy enough where it's not really a widespread phenomena. So I, I don't think when you're a wealthy enough country, there are so many things, private, public, just the, the economic opportunity alone. There are so many people who don't have to work. I mean, the majority of households have children or one spouse that's not working. There's So you already have sort of an economy where everyone kind of has the, the bottom in the U.S. is is not that far. You're you're probably not going to die if you don't have a job. So I, I don't want to maybe this isn't playing devil's advocate, but I also want to just say quickly, I really hate when you get into these discussions on things like, say, poverty, any anything on earnings, especially earnings or wealth. 
because this is this goes back to the fact that just the geographic entity that is the United States is so massive. To be wealthy in, say, San Francisco, it is radically different than being wealthy even in like Detroit, right? Yeah. And even to being wealthy in Kansas. Right. And being wealthy in Detroit is radically different than being wealthy in like Appalachia, uh, West Virginia, right? So you in this you see this a lot in the discussions on um, minimum wage, right? Oh, we need a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Maybe that you can make a decent argument for that aside from like all the moral arguments in, say, San Francisco. But you don't need fifteen dollars an hour to live comfortably in, and you don't you shouldn't even need to live comfortably on minimum wage, but even to like get by in, say, Pittsburgh or to get by in something like rural Appalachia. So, I think that th that's another we we need to set the locus of the discussion. Well, there's it's there's, just it, the entity is just too big. Well, it just and, makes zero sense. And I've heard a lot of people not making the argument so much from poverty, but more saying, okay, people who aren't impoverished that if they just didn't have to go, you know, work at Subway every day, if if they're really creative, if someone could just pay them to live and they could pay them just to think up ideas and be innovative and do great things. Well, let me tell you something that already exists. That already exists. If you're super creative and you can think up amazing, valuable ideas, you can go pitch them to people. And if they're really good, people will either fund you as a startup. People will support you on something like Patreon. People, it's really, really hard work. And what people, most people really want when they claim they want the freedom to, to actually produce great ideas and businesses, and they just need a UBI to, to give them that freedom. What they really want is no accountability and they don't want to work hard at well, because it's, it's, it's really it's, hard. It's, it's just another version of the people that, you know, you and I run into a lot, unfortunately, who are like, Oh yeah, I've got this great, I, I've got my, the, the funniest is when they say they actually already have a startup and I just need to raise, you know, like a half million dollars to pay my salary. Yes. Right. Do you, do you have any, do you have any customers yet? Do, yeah. you, do you have a product? Yeah. Uh, and they're going have you to build anything. No, I can't build anything until someone guarantees that I can live comfortably for the next three years. Right. Then the I'll start building. The, there, there is a difference between, say, something that just has very high startup costs, right? Right. right. And something that just somebody who just wants money so that they can they can get by for the next year. Okay. So, so the the final reason though that I think nobody talks about that UBI is just bad. I think it's damaging to the souls of the recipients. I think this it's is an idea damaging to your I've, humanity, I've, to your I've, dignity. Let, it, it's like, think about, and I don't want to, to try to make this comparison and say, if you advocate UBI, you're, you're a slave owner in the South, but I wanna be really realistic. I've read a lot about this since moving to, to Charleston. I don't wanna say it, but I'm going to no, say- No, but, but think about the, what's at the heart of it. Many plantation owners said, and they were materially correct many times that, I don't want these slaves, these, these human beings to suffer the indignity of being really poor, getting sick and maybe dying, being unable by themselves to have a decent life. And if they went to try to get a job in some factory in the North, they would actually have a material worse life. I care so much about them. I want to take care of them and ensure that they're fed and clothed and keep them here on the plantation. Now, that is a, a, even if it's materially correct. And in many cases, it probably was. If a slave was freed from somewhere, the odds that they had would make a materially better life for themselves at that time were probably very low. So you can say that genuinely feeling compassion for those people, but all of us today would say, 
that completely undermines the human dignity. There's something corrosive about being living off of someone else because they care so much about you. They don't dare, yeah. they don't believe that you're capable of doing anything. It yeah. corrodes your soul and your sense of self-worth and it's and it's completely undignified. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting, you know, somewhat unrelated to this. Um, if this were actually implemented as a policy, I think it would actually, so Robert knows because this idea of the tale of the slave, right? That you have something like eight stages of slavery. Uh, the first one being actual chattel slavery. And the last one essentially being liberal democracy. Uh, you get to vote for your the you vote for the slave drivers, and they're extremely benevolent towards you. I think a UBI would actually be one of these few examples where you would regress closer to the chattel side. Yeah, you move back just a little bit. Yeah, you move back. Like historically, we've been moving closer and closer to the eighth stage, and we're pretty close to it now. But with UBI, everybody would have their own, you know, their benevolent overlord. Which it's interesting. I I run into some of these people in the the blockchain bitcoiny space who are really big advocates of ubi and they say that it would be execute it wouldn't be you wouldn't need any kind of bureaucracy to execute it that it would just be distributed on the blockchain which i'm not i i've tried having this discussion with them and either it's it goes way over my head or it's totally confused or both uh and i would i would be interested in hearing more on how that could be done i i still don't think it would be a good policy but if you could cut out bureaucrats it's at least a, another step uh away from a centralized state. I did not expect to uh, have a UBI discussion. That was kind of fun. Um, well, I mean, it, it, it's tied into the futurism discussion because well, it, it is for weird reasons. Because there's like, so many again, people that think, "Oh my gosh, Murray," who think that it needs to be done because we're going to reach this kind of mass unemployment where well, everyone's going to be the, miserable. The weird thing about it is people feel like the argument for it somehow increases the wealthier we get. Oh my gosh, someday we're going to be so wealthy that we need to make sure that government gives people money. You know, right. it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, like imagine, imagine a couple hundred years ago saying, man, if, if the automobile gets invented, the first thing we're going to need to do is start having the government send money to people because it's going to, it's going to destroy everything. Like, no, everyone is better off since then rich and poor alike. Like, how do you see this as somehow requiring some new form of welfare? It's the opposite. It means there's less need for government of any kind and, and all this. Yeah. Anyway, get me all hyped up. Zach, Slayback <laughs> to the future. Um, go to ZachSlayback.com. Zach has a lot of interesting stuff about technology, entrepreneurship, some of this futurism stuff, tons of stuff on education. Obviously his book that came out not long ago, The End of School, phenomenal book. Go check it out on Amazon. Um, and uh, Zach, uh, this was a lot of fun. Any, any, anything you have to leave our listeners with for uh, something specific that you think they should read or think about? Um, I, the Klosterman book is really good. Uh, and it gets more, wrong, yeah. but if we're wrong by Chuck Klosterman, it's, it's, Got this, as you put it, it's got this Hayekian humility I really like. Um, now, this, this raises an interesting idea. I, I know we're, we're at the end of the discussion, but this is something that came up while I was, thinking, while I was reading through the Klosterman book and that I get from following Mark Andreessen and Sam Altman in particular, that these guys are big advocates of this idea that we are not in a bubble right now. We're not in a tech bubble. Yeah, I don't and, think we are either. And that this time it's just different. And that the amount of investment in technology is just fundamentally different than, say, uh, if you had a similar amount of investment in, say, real estate, right? And well, well, you can look at the reasons in the real estate market uh, example. The main reason so much of that was happening was artificially manipulated interest rates. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think 
that's driving investment in technology. Yeah, so I think I think where I where I come down on this, I've I've shifted a little bit myself on on this topic. I don't think that you're in a tech bubble. I think what you might be in is just a broader, more like bubbly economy. Yeah. Because when you get to when you get to something larger like C rounds, you're looking to like institutional investors who tend to have their money tied up in other things. So if say like the entire financial market fell out tomorrow, it'd be a lot hard a lot harder to raise the C round, right? right. You're seeing a lot of hedge funds um, starting to uh, having a lot more problems. Yeah, right I, would, I would almost say the tech sector, software especially, is the one area that probably has the least sort of artificial um, or unjustifiable stuff. And going it's the on. only it's it's the only sector that during the 2008 uh, housing crisis and financial crisis that you actually saw a decent progress in. It was during the Great Recession that Uber was founded. It was around that same time that you had Airbnb and these other a lot of these other large unicorns get found uh, founded and built up. So, I, I've I've caught myself asking myself in the last couple of days, you know, what if we're wrong under this this bubble conception? How many good companies aren't being founded? Mm. How many good companies aren't being funded? How many potential investors are holding off on investing because they think that we're on like the precipice of this gigantic tech bubble? And what are the implications from something like that? I think that it, it, it's a it's a considerably less bright future. Um, okay, all right, we're, we're gonna we should, so that's we, like we a whole a, other yeah we have a whole topic. other conversation about tech bubble, no tech bubble. What does that mean? Um, okay, so check out but what if we're wrong by Chuck Klosterman, uh, and check out zackslayback.com. That's z a k slayback.com. Also, Zach, Medium. I write pretty regularly on Medium. Uh, Medium, yeah, tr- Twitter, I to, Facebook, Zach is everywhere. I try to republish things on my own blog, but I'm um, using Medium more often recently. He's everywhere. Zach, thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Isaac.